Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. We get to open up God's Word together today to a brand new book of the Bible, perhaps for the first time for many of us. So please meet me in Romans chapter 1. I'm eager to begin this particular text. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we get to Acts, which we went through uh, in the past couple of years, and now we get to Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, then you get to Acts, and then then Romans. And so uh, before we get to that text, though, I just want to thank you. It, it's not There's not a day that goes by that I don't hear stories of Church in the Square family, brothers, sisters, friends caring for one another, whether it is just a phone call, whether it is providing meals, groceries, just calling to check in. It's just been really a thrill, such an encouragement to me as one of your elders, fellow brother in this together, uh, just to see and hear the stories of God's faithfulness to his church through his people. And so I just want to encourage you, continue to check in on one another, continue to care for one another. We've, we've had tremendous opportunities as a leadership team, as elders, deacons, and staff to see a, a number of different individuals get, get help with their rent uh, this past month, help with, with bills or groceries, as well as uh, Monroe Elementary and different opportunities we've had to extend the generosity of God through obedience to him in uh, different technical or rather um, technology needs that our friends have at Monroe. And so grateful that we get to do that together. Thank you. And may we just not grow weary in doing uh, good. And, and I just want to encourage you, invite you, let's continue to pray for the Lord's will to be done. And I was pray for one another. In fact, Thursday nights, every Thursday night, 8 p.m., our deacons are gathering um, and everyone is welcome, not just if you have something to pray for, but to be a people who pray. And so I want to encourage you that through suffering, through challenge, through difficulty, uncertainty, what the people of God do is we gather and we pray. And so please join us on that Zoom call Thursday nights at 8 p.m., uh, especially as we uh, let's pray for one another as there is a continuation of uh, schools being closed through the remainder of the year, which we just found out about a couple of days ago, or we'll keep you connected and informed as best we know how when we have more information about the implications that has for us as a church family. But let's be a prayerful people. Let's ask for the Lord's will to be done in the myriad of different things that we are experiencing as a church family, as a city, country, and world. And so I just want to uh, thank you, encourage you that God is at work in this, and yet let's let's not grow weary. In some respects, it's really just begun. Um, with that being said, I'll, I'll turn our attention to Romans. Um, it's widely understood that the best way to uh, change culture is to make new culture. Culture really is simply this idea that uh, a way in which we make sense of the world. And the way that we make sense of the world comes with its own diets and its own religions and its own, its own worldviews. In fact, its own way of drinking coffee. You can see even different cultures within the different subsets of neighborhoods within Chicago, a, a different system of belief even, or, or what's important and ways of doing life, ways of going to the grocery store or restaurants or the way we build homes. Some, some things evil, some things good, some things more uh, innocuous. And, and yet in all of that, what we are really talking about is a way that we see the world, a way that we see and operate within the world, this 
This is culture. And the book of Romans is just, just that. It's a treatise on new culture. What the Apostle Paul will be doing is setting an agenda, setting a plan, if you will, a clarity through the gospel of the new culture of God's people. It's known, Romans is, for its robust theological overview. And, and I think that's right. That's good. Paul takes a lot of time and leaves almost no doctrinal stone unturned as he goes through this entire book of the Bible and presents it to God's people, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the will of God through the instrument, the Apostle Paul. He, it's, it's a rich, theologically dense book. The 16th century theologian, German monk, uh, Martin Luther said this about Romans. The epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is the truly purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian uh, should know it word for word by heart, but also that that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. Not only did Luther memorize Romans, but he took two years in his teaching profession to focus just on Romans in 1515 all the way through 1516. But, but also both John Calvin, a French theologian, and William Tyndale, who was really the, the grandfather, the father who sort of pioneered uh, Bible translation in the English language, claimed that to know the book of Romans is really to unlock the rest of the scriptures. It's to be able to see and understand the rest of the Bible. And Latin church father Aurelius Augustinius from, from Algeria said that it was through the book of Romans that all the shadows of his personal doubts were dispelled and with such a legacy, with such rich theological heritage, if you will, it would be easy to neglect the most obvious thing about Romans in the nature of its writing. It's a letter. Yes, it has all of this, this theological veracity and power to it, but it also is a letter written by Paul to his friends, his brothers and sisters in Rome. See, to only see this as a theological work would be to miss the heart behind it. Paul was not simply sitting down to write some comprehensive treatise on the Christian faith. He was writing to implore his brothers and sisters, his, his friends, to know the gospel and to live in light of the gospel. This was not just about making sure that their minds were sharp and that they had all the right theological and biblical answers, but that their hearts were transformed. Am I preaching to you yet? That it wasn't just about the information that they would receive, though that information is so valuable and so precious and so good, but it was about allowing that information, that understanding of who God is to transform the very composition of the soul. Because that's what theology is really about. Theology is not about memorizing ideas and information so that we can uh, have long ballads and discussions and arguments to the nth degree, but it's so that we become more like Christ. Good doctrine is meant to transform the soul, not meant to boast up the mind. And so Paul was writing not just a theological, theologically clear piece of literature, he's writing a letter. And so then it's not surprising if you look in Romans 1, look down at verse 11. People whom he told, he's, he's writing people whom he told, for I long to see you, 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And, and even by the end of the letter, we get a heart that, that Paul has at the very beginning, but even by the end of the letter in Romans 16, Paul is just listing names of men and women whom he knew, who he believed and trusted were great blessings to those who were reading his letter. He knows them by name. These are his friends. These are his sisters. These are his, his brothers in the faith. So Paul is not merely teaching or a teacher writing about doctrine, though, though, though he is. He's writing a letter imploring the church to live in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. He gives pastoral care out of concern for his church family. He writes out of love. And in fact, in large measure, Paul is writing to the Roman church in order to seek and produce unity within the church based upon the work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would be unified, that when he comes through, he when he when he finally goes to Rome, because he hadn't been there yet, when he finally comes through Rome on his way to Spain, that he'd have their support. In fact, that, that's made really clear in Romans 15, 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. This letter will be our home for a while. I don't know how long we're going to be in Romans. We've charted out the first couple of months, but think years, not, not months. You know, when we first sat down, the, the elders and I put together a draft of what this series would look like. It lasted a couple of years or maybe just less than. And, and I was really concerned as we brought that together and thought through that together, that we would be missing far too much of Paul's heart and God's inspired purpose for putting together, for putting pen to paper and writing to the Romans. And so we're going to settle in. I invite you, settle in, start reading Romans, allow the density and beauty and heart of Romans to just begin to settle in your soul. We're, we're going to be here for a minute. We just get comfortable in this. We're going to take our time. We'll pause for Easter and Advent along the way. And if things come up in the life of our church or, or around us that we need to pay attention to and go to God's word, we, we'll do that. We don't want to be stuck in a particular way and not be able to be flexible to, to God's leading through this season. But we do want to stay committed to this particular portion of scripture that we might see, understand, and enjoy all that God has for us in this book. And so read this letter regularly. Read it with your kids, read it with your with your friends, with your group. We'll, we'll offer supplemental reading along the way um, to, to help us. We'll memorize scripture along the way. We'll ask questions of one another in our, in our groups. I encourage you, if you're not in a group yet, get in a group during this season. It'll be a vital time for your spiritual formation. And, and I trust that through all of this, however long it takes, that by the time we get to chapter 16, and we will get to chapter 16, by the time we get to chapter 16, we'll be different. I'm not going to recognize you and you likely by God's grace will not recognize me that, that this letter will do what God purposed for it to do to transform us by the renewing of our mind. 
that we would become holy sacrifices unto the Lord, that our lives would be living, breathing metaphors of the gospel. And so you and I aren't going to recognize each other on the other side of Romans. And to that we rejoice. To that we celebrate. See, this book will not just change the culture of our church and change the culture perhaps even uh, in our minds. It will make new culture. It will present new culture forged together by the grace of God. That That's one of the primary impacts of this book in the original context. The book of Romans is a lens through which we uh, appropriately make sense of the world around us physically, emotionally, spiritually. We, we will meet our sin in a fresh way in this letter. We'll be overwhelmed by, by who God is and what, what he is like above all things. And so through, through this, we'll get a fresh understanding of who God is, who we're meant to be in this world. And this has been and will continue to be my prayer as we come to the book of Romans for however long the Lord would allow. And so to set us out on our way, let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you, Father, that in the midst of such a challenging and unprecedented season, you are faithful. You're so faithful and you are so kind and persistent in your grace. Thank you for the ways that you are at work in our church family, in our city, country, and world. We ask, Father, that you would continue, bring healing, end this virus, end this disease, bring bring resolution, we pray, God, bring peace. And between now and then, Father, we ask that you would give us faith. You'd give us persistence. You'd give us joy. You'd give us understanding of what it means to suffer well, to endure well, to wait patiently well upon the Lord for the renewal of our strength. And so, God, as we come to your word, we ask for your help because it's only with your help that we'll understand, that we'll comprehend, that we'll be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so, God, I pray for myself. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. I pray for my friends. I pray for myself that as your word is proclaimed over us as your church, that we would repent of sin, that we would confess, perhaps in a fresh way, our allegiance to you, our Lord, and that we would be repurposed by your spirit to be men and women who are not just hearers of the word, but doers of this word. Especially today, as we consider what it is to surrender to you, Father, may we lay aside our defenses. May we cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Even even as your word is proclaimed, may we take moments to pause and to lament just personally in our own hearts and minds and cry out to you and ask for your help in this and confess sin to you. We come to you now as your children and we thank you so very much that we can come that way. Children who need to hear from you. Children who are desperate for your grace. And so we ask that you'd speak to us, your kids, your your church, your people. Now for your glory and our good, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, Paul did not start the church in Rome. In fact, uh, at the time of the writing, Paul had not even been to Rome yet. He'd not actually been to the city 
And it's most likely that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that Roman Jews became followers of Jesus, and then they returned home after Pentecost, taking their new understanding of who God is through Christ by his Spirit, and began to participate with God in seeing the church instituted out of the synagogues. So these Roman Jews who were there at Pentecost become followers of Jesus, go back to Rome, into the synagogues, and so we see likely a, a a birth of Christianity within the synagogue, within the Jewish population in Rome. But like all gospel growth, there's immediate opposition. Rome would be no different. Roman uh, historian Suetonius, recounting the life of Emperor Claudius, documented the expulsion of Jews from the city because there was this constant rioting taking place. And by his recollection, the, the person in the epicenter, in the center of that rioting was a disagreement, a discord on the person of Jesus Christ. Luke records this too for us in Acts chapter 18. Paul found a Jew named uh, Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. This couple who had heard and believed the gospel in Rome were among those expelled from the city, likely because of conflict over Jesus, likely because of conflict over the reality of Jesus. And this happened, this conflict in Rome that, that saw, that led to the um, dismissal of Jews out of the city took place about 10 years before Romans was written. Romans likely written in 57 um, AD. And so Luke's writing seemed to provide space then for Paul to write this letter, Romans, near the end of his third missionary journey and documented there when he was in Greece in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 as well corroborates this. He has about three months in that space. And so Paul's original audience, the church in Rome, has experienced great hardship and there is significant tension then within the Jewish and Jewish Christian communities in Rome, specifically over the nature of Jesus. The result of this this expulsion of Jews and the tension that there were is that that Gentile Christians would have likely found themselves within positions of leadership within the church at Rome. With all of the Jewish Christians being forced out, the Gentile Christians remained. They kept gathering. Therefore, whatever perhaps deeply Jewish roots may have been birthed and grown within the church in Rome may have had a hard time at this point continuing to, to develop and to grow at the absence of the Jewish brothers and sisters. And so remember, Christianity would have been really young at this point, just a few decades old. And so we don't have well-developed and sophisticated organizations and structures and hierarchies and heritages. We don't have centuries of potlucks happening or, or a particular color of the carpet being something that's been conversed for generations we have ecclesiastic infancy. These are new followers of Jesus and now dealing with a very complicated situation. It's into this particular moment that then the apostle Paul would warn in Romans chapter 16, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he writes, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
Church was new. Church was young. Church was impressionable. And so Luke pastorally with care, lovingly warns them against such division. We also see the shape of the church in Rome in the middle of the first century uh, was comprised of several house churches. Paul sort of tips his hand to this in the very final chapter of Romans. He mentions directly and indirectly different church leaders and gatherings of Christians as he gives his final greetings and closing remarks. And so it's likely that the absence of Jewish Christians in a time of their expulsion led to great Gentile growth and conversion in Rome. More non-Jews were coming to faith through family and relationships and conversation and vocational connection in Rome than than Jews were because they, they were out of the city. And therefore, even though a great deal of the language in Romans A great deal of the mindset of Paul as he writes to Romans has to do with Jew-Gentile relationships, particularly Jewish tradition and Jewish religion, particularly the Mosaic law. The audience was majority Gentile because of this growth and because of this season of life in the city. This is what's going on in the Roman church. But that only tells us part of the story. See, after all, the first century exposition is set within the limits of one of the most culturally shaping cities ever in the history of man, the Roman Empire. One historian called the Roman Empire the greatest and perhaps most awful scene in history of mankind. It was a period birthed out of a legend. Tradition held that in 753 BC, the founder of Rome, a man named Romulus, nursed from a wolf one of the most bizarre stories Ever. And, and this particular story led to the sticky reputation of savagery and bravado that lasted for the duration of the empire. But the monarchy that Romulus instituted only lasted a couple of hundred years because around 500 BC, they established the Republic. And so they have this power, this bravado. And yet these freedoms now begin to introduce themselves into this strong imperialistic authority and tendencies. This begins to solidify Roman ego, not only around who they are in power, but what they enjoy in freedom. And so one ancient commentator, Virgil, summarized this ego with a vision of Roman conquest. He says, your task, O Rome, is to rule and bring the men to the arts of government, to impose upon them the arts of peace, to spare those who submit and to subdue the arrogant. Both in military defeat and in victory, this larger than life persona was truly solidified in the ancient world for Rome. See, in fact, on the verge of one of their greatest defeats at the hand of Hannibal, the Carthinian, Carthaginian uh, general, Their backs were against the wall. They lost over a fifth of their military power. And all modern convention, all modern warfare conventions said that Rome should have given up. But when their backs are against the wall in such a way, they make one of the greatest comebacks in military history, have lost a fifth of their military power, and they come back and defeat this enemy army. army. And so for Rome there, something is solidified forever, sealed as a formidable force in the history of the modern world. See, this military conquest and soon 
their two centuries of peace, known as Pax Romana, calcified this cultural perspective of this first century people, which then amounted into this everyday love affair with honor. It, it all came together in an honor of their actions, their aspirations, their vocational pursuits and relationships. The honor and a love for honor became the central defining factor for the Roman people. This is really hard for us to understand because our culture is actually much different from the Roman culture, at least in content, different at least in the specificity of what it was that was central to them. You see, for us, the modern equivalent is happiness. Happiness is what drives us and what drives the prevailing culture and all of our logic and pursuits. You see, today, a mother and father just want their kids to be happy. This is basic and fundamental aspiration and presumption of anything from the New York Times parenting column all the way down to the decisions you and I make as parents for the school that our kids go to here in the city. Happiness becomes very central. We, we just want our kids to be happy. And in that same impulse that you and I are informed by our contemporary context, the Romans were informed by an impulse of honor. Historian John Dixon explains that utmost in a father's mind in the ancient world would not have been that his son would be happy or make money or live morally, but whether that boy would bring honor to his family, especially his father or himself. Honor was cultural normalcy. Happiness today is our cultural expectation. Think about the Declaration of Independence that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. It's an old idea for the Romans in similar fashion. It's concise that taking hold of honor due to your own merit was perfectly acceptable. It's an idea known as philotemia, Philotemia, the love of honor. In fact, in the Oxford Classic Dictionary, it makes a direct reference to Roman culture. Roman culture is literally the definition of philotemia or love of honor. Three decades before the birth of Jesus Christ, Aristotle tried to define this idea of honor. He explained that it was best understood or seen after someone dies. He writes, honor is a sign of reputation for doing good and benefactors above all are justly honored. Although one with the potential of doing good is also honored. In other words, if you've done good, great. If you have the potential to do good, also probably great. The components of honor are uh, sacrifices made for the benefactor after death. Memorial inscriptions in verse or prose receipt of special awards, grants of land, front seats at festivals, burial at the public expense, statues, free food in the state dining room. Aristotle's list continues of all the ways that the honor is exhibited for people, uh, but I think we get the picture. You get invited to the table, that's honoring. You get invited by the right people to the right place at the right time, you are special. And this was the goal of every Roman citizen, to be rightly honored. This was the aim in life. Therefore, in life, in Roman life, it was expected and never frowned upon to boast about yourself regularly. Because after all, if you were to be remembered after you died, you better make sure in life people knew how awesome you were. 
And so regularly, consistently, constantly, from emperors to historians to teachers, we have countless records of people listing, announcing, heralding their honor. All of this was expected in the ancient world, never questioned, never looked down upon, never socially unacceptable. No amount of self-promotion was distasteful as long as it was true. It's in this cultural moment that this new church is birthed in Rome. In this particular cultural moment, in this historic boasting culture, the Apostle Paul writes. Look at verse 1 in chapter 1 of Romans. Here's the first word of his correspondence to this church in Rome with all of this. And the backdrop for us, it's his name, Paul. As a church family, we were formally introduced to Paul in our Acts series a number of months ago. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Over to the left, just one book of the Bible, Acts chapter 8. If you remember at the conclusion of Acts chapter 7, we see the martyrdom of the very first Christian. Stephen, one of the first deacons, is executed for his faith, which I think is an incredible call to prayer for us, for our deacons who are constantly, daily, whether on the phone or through a Zoom call or showing up in person to someone's house in one way or another, serving the church and in the middle of more warfare than many of us probably always often admit and acknowledge. And and Stephen's life is an example, a picture of this. Stephen is stoned to death for the sake of Jesus. And we're told, look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And there were they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here we're introduced to Paul, or here in, in Acts is Saul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Hellenistic or Greek name, and it was common in the ancient world for someone to have two names, each unique to the ethnic or cultural context that they found themselves in. This is not unlike how someone from a non-English-speaking country will take on an anglicized name in the United States or another English-speaking country, and the converse would also be true. That being said, Paul or Saul was an opponent of the early church. Out of zeal for his faith, in Judaism. That's how he describes his own actions in Philippians chapter 3. For we are the circumcision, Paul writes, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was a picture of Hebrew purity. Though he was from a town, a small town in Turkey, he was educated in the Torah by a prominent Hebrew rabbi named Gamaliel. And yet, he meets his match in Jesus Christ. Look, look just one chapter over from Acts 8. Now look at Acts chapter 9, verse 3. This meeting of his match takes place on a road uh, on his way to Damascus. And here is how Luke records it. Again, the writer of Acts in Acts 9, verse 3. 
Now as he went on his way, as Paul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul meets Jesus and is called into this mission of apostleship to Gentiles and to Jews to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches all throughout first century Asia Minor. But Paul would not have seen his story as a conversion story. He would have not have seen such a move that we often think about in our sort of modern retelling. This is important. We often get this wrong. Uh, Scholar N.T. Wright explains in his great biography on Paul, he explains it this way, in following the crucified Jesus and announcing that Israel's God had raised him from the dead, Paul was actually being loyal to his ancestral traditions, though in a way neither he nor anyone else could have possibly expected. So Paul is literally falling course from the Old to the New Testament, if you will, from the Old to the New Covenant, because the God of the Old is the God of the New. The God who is Alpha is also Omega, the beginning and the end. And so Paul believes he's being faithful to his faith in this. And this is the man. This is the man who writes Romans. This particular person instructed his brothers and sisters, both Jews and Gentiles in the first century, a man who persecuted the church, a man who deeply was committed to the God of the Bible, a man who came face to face with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a man who, with all this being true of him, still said that all of these accolades, which the Roman and Hebrew world would have found tremendous honor and value in, he said this, of all of those things, but whatever I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul considered it all a loss for the sake of Christ. And this is why he introduces himself to the Roman Christians this particular way. Look at verse 1 in Romans again. He says, Paul, a servant. We've taken some time to give clarity to what's going on in the ancient world, what's happening in the life of the church in Rome. We've taken some time to understand Roman culture at large because it's only when we have those two things in mind, when we have clarity about what's taking place in the first century world, that the weight of what Paul just said will hit us like it did the first century audience. Paul just called himself a servant. What what he just said is that he gives his will over to that of another. Paul gives himself over. What readers knew was that to be a slave of the Lord would have been to surrender to the very will of God. See, first, with cultural connection and savvy, he introduces himself by his, his, his Hellenistic name. He does not see this as a sellout. 
He identifies with the prevailing culture. He was a Roman citizen. But as a citizen who understood the eternal significance of imperial honor in Rome, whose fresh instinct and self-awareness informed by a particular uh, zeal for the Republic and its freedoms with the host of anyone who was worth listening to in Rome, speaking about their allegiance to themselves, to their honor, that they would review their own reasons for boasting, he divinely chooses to be known at the outset of this magnificent letter as a servant. Can you even imagine? And though his readers were followers of Jesus, they too were, were citizens of Rome. The air that they breathed was teeming with bravado of self-aggrandizement and self-promotion and self-honor. And Paul says, I'm a servant. This is like a cosmic collision in the ears of Paul's readers. See, Paul wrote Romans in Greek. And, to, and the, the word he uses is not exactly what comes to mind when we read the word servant. See, for us, maybe we think of someone who waits hand and foot upon someone else, whether or not they get paid, they, they serve them. They're, they're their servant in that particular moment. However, th- this particular idea leaves behind and keeps vague what comes into focus when we look closer It only scratches the surface of the subjugation that ought to come to mind when we read this word. See, Paul's larger introduction, which will take a few weeks to unpack, consists of his master, Jesus, his office, apostle, and his purpose, the gospel. But before he gets to any of that, he identifies himself with this word, servant. The word in the original language is doulos. It is best rendered as slave rather than servant. Servant is softer and less offensive, isn't it? However, many biblical translators, when, when they're asked why they chose the word servant, in many cases where doulos shows up and not slave, they admit servant is just easier to read. It's more comfortable, it's more accessible, it's more palatable, they often say. It's not as offensive. To be fair, in the preface of the ESV Bible which we regularly use here at Church in the Square, there's a lengthy explanation that's offered, citing the complexity and multiplicity of different meanings and contexts, that in those different contexts, the the right word may be servant or slave or bondservant for the translation of doulos. But generally speaking, the word slave is just too offensive, conjuring explicit images of dehumanization, the institution of slavery, perhaps for many of us, the exact institution of slavery in the 19th century American country. It's an offensive idea. But I'd like to suggest to you, Paul is trying to offend us. He is trying to offend a consciousness that believes we are anything but this. Paul is trying to provide an introduction, which is a direct assault, not just on common courtesy, but also of the idolatry of self-honor, which was rampant in his first century readers. See, this will become increasingly clear throughout Paul's letter. He desired to offend a mindset which was so deeply rooted in cultural platitudes and systems and powers that had become drunk and inoculated by the absurdity of self-honor, of honoring self, of glorifying himself. Paul knew that self-glory was a direct violation of God's glory 
And therefore, he introduces himself in the most contrary way possible for a Roman citizen. Paul, a slave, it's shameful, debased, and universally accepted, and yet and universally accepted enterprise within his particular world. This is Paul, a slave. Many scholars have given their lives to this word. In fact, whole books have been written just on this one word, and rightly so. In the Old and New Testament, men and women are constantly designated as servants or as slaves of God. We fall, therefore, in line. Paul does, and, and we with him, with a great heritage of our faith, forerunners, our spiritual mothers and fathers, if you will. Nehemiah, Isaiah, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, David, all called and often even self-identify as servants or slaves of God. In fact, in Isaiah, God calls all of Israel his servant. But specifically in Paul's context, to be a slave within the Roman Empire, what would have been conjured in the minds of those early readers was this seven-year commitment that someone would have to serve contractually under their master. And if you were in Caesar's house, it was double that. It was 14. It was official. It had legal teeth to it. It was an institution that, that sometimes came by way of the will of the slave that, that, that they employed themselves, but more often than not, it was by the will of another. See, Paul's audience knew this. They, they understood this, and that therefore what Paul was communicating was this idea of surrender. Surrendering to the will, to the glory, and to the agency of someone else. To be a slave is to surrender your will. The Greco-Roman world was favorable towards serving the city-state. However, what is repudiated is service after the manner of doulos, or slave, who not only has no possibility of evading the task laid before him, but who also has no right of personal choice, who must rather do what another will have done or refrain from doing what another will have done. This is what one dictionary sort of describes as that laying aside of will. So with this in mind, it's not surprising to know that up until this point, the writings of the New Testament, as this uh, continues on, that the word group uh, shows up shows us that it is, has, has no connection to the religious sphere within the Greco-Roman world. In other words, the New Testament writers are, within the Greek language are making the first connection between the word slave or servant, doulos, and faith in God. This connection had not been made before within the language. See, Jesus, though, taught his disciples to pray in this particular area. We, we follow a long biblical heritage with this word association. Jesus taught his disciples to pray to the, their, their father that, that his will would be done. Jeremiah also proclaims, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That is, it is not man who walks to direct his steps. James also teaches surrender and submission of the will unto the Lord, saying simply submit yourselves to God. And of course, Jesus demonstrates with cosmic clarity in Luke chapter 22, when he says to the father on the shore of his crucifixion, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Paul tells his readers, I'm Paul and I've surrendered my will. But not only his will, his glory, this would have been probably most fundamentally against common Roman consciousness, that you would lay aside your glory. In other words, to be a slave is, is to cease from honoring yourself and seeking your own adulation. Curiously, Romans were repulsed by narcissism. 
they, they had a tale within their Greek mythology that they would have inherited that would have been part of their sort of common understanding of the world. Narcissus is the name of this, this character in Greek mythology who was led by an enemy to a pool and he was enamored with his own face in that pool, that reflecting pool, and he never left and he died there by the, soul, by, by the pool and, and he was so consumed with himself that he died. So this is a cautionary tale within mythology that even though they are a society built on honor, they also shy away and were repelled by self-love as you and I are. Now, it might seem kind of strange. How could we have a culture that glories in self and yet detests in self-love or narcissism? How could these two things live in harmony in the same culture? Well, I don't think we need to look at Roman culture. I think we can look at our own. Social media is filled with self. And yet we too are repelled by self-love. In other words, by just a view of self and a consideration of self. Why? Well, perhaps it's because we're a lot more like the Roman culture than we dare to admit at first glance. John Dixon, the historian, continues, uh, again referring to the Roman uh, world, that no one appreciated crass boasting, hubris, or arrogance, but taking hold of the honor due to your merit was perfectly acceptable. That's philotemia. That's love of, of honor. So self-promotion is different than self-love as long as it's true. So one of the ways that we rationalize seeking self-honor and self-glory as we go, but it's true. So if it's something that's true and real, then I can boast about it. Then I can proclaim it. Then I can share it on Instagram. The slave, therefore, is one who not only lays aside self-promotion, but also self-love as the fundamental impulse of their being. See, so not only does Paul instruct elsewhere that everything should be done unto the glory of God, but wrote this completely anti-Roman and, if you please, anti-American ethic. Why don't we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Just a couple of uh, books of the Bible to the right. You go 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but... On my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. In other words, I, I wouldn't be lying. I'd be telling you the truth about who I am. But I refrain, verse 6 continues, from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, hear this church, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Instead of boasting in personal strength, the, the follower of Jesus, the slave of God, boasts in weakness unto the glory of Christ. 
See, all of the broken things in my life that have been mended back together, forgiven, restored, are being worked on by the Lord. All of those weaknesses, the things that I often can be ashamed of that I would not proclaim for my own honor, I get to proclaim those weaknesses because when I proclaim those weaknesses, the glory of Christ is on display. And if my aim is the glory of Christ, it drives out shame, it drives out guilt, it drives out the angst that I feel in order to, or the angst I feel to glory myself, and I can glory in Christ even in my weaknesses. You see, self-promotion and self-love die at the cross. And there we receive a new heart, a new nature, an affection for Jesus, which gives us a new impulse by his spirit to glorify Christ, to promote Christ, to adulate Christ, and to love Christ. This is the idea bound up in doulos. I am Paul, he says, and I've surrendered my glory. To be a slave then is to surrender will, to surrender glory, but also to surrender agency. And perhaps one of the most spectacular and memorable stories of the surrendering of agency and the picture of this is Jesus' own mother, Mary. She uh, surrenders will for the sake of God's glory by releasing her personal agency. Luke chapter 1, verse 38, and, and Mary said, Behold, I am a, the servant of the Lord. I'm the doulos of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She releases, she concedes, she surrenders. She allows her reputation to be placed in the hands of the Lord. She allows her life to be according to the word of God delivered by the angel. An angel who told her she would give birth to the son of the living God. This ought to be the same disposition of every follower of Jesus, because as Paul will write in Romans chapter 6, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. You see, through the death of Jesus, a transaction has taken place. We, like slaves, have been purchased at a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and we have not been freed from sin in order to be freed to our own agency. But our freedom comes with shackles a liberating bondage that binds us to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In an even richer theological sense, we are, we are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This was something Corey Tinboom understood well. She was not only a Nazi prisoner herself, but she worked with the Dutch Resistance, an organization that saved my grandfather's life. The Dutch Resistance who hid prisoners of war throughout occupied areas in Holland, all over the Netherlands. Corrie Ten Boom not only was imprisoned herself, but she helped to free and hide Jews and bring them out of concentration, concentration camps. So she worked to free those whose agencies had been stolen and this ethic, this idea, this new culture had been put on them, that they were in bondage, that they were slaves in, in, in a way that dehumanized, that broke them down. And then she presents this new culture, Ten Boom does, and she instills this in them saying what? Trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, she says, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. Ten Boom understood that true freedom is not unbridled agency, but the surrender of agency to God's Spirit. That's doulos. 
I am Paul. I have surrendered my agency. I've surrendered my will. I've surrendered my glory. I've surrendered my agency. It's with this wealth of biblical heritage that Paul calls himself a slave. Doulos, his will, his glory, his agency have been given over to the will, the glory, the agency of another. This would have cut to the heart of those Roman readers just as much as it cuts to our own heart. This is an offense to our prevailing cultural consciousness of of my specialness, of my personality, of my own ego, of my own understanding of self. The first century Romans would have therefore asked, how then am I going to be honored? If I give away my will, if I give away my agency, if I give away my glory, how am I going to be honored? And you and I are probably asking, how am I going to be happy? If I give away my will, if I give away my glory, if I give away my agency, how am I going to be happy? Well, what if, what if true honor comes through servitude? What if real happiness comes from surrender? Something a first century Roman could no less comprehend in their time than you and I can comprehend in ours. But remember, Paul is not just a servant. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. Look one more time at Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The problem we have with slavery is quite similar to the issue that Paul's original readers would have had with slavery, at least in believing themselves to be slaves. In surrendering will and glory and agency to another, we fear and believe that we will lose ourselves. Our unique life, our identity will be gone. We'll lose our humanity. And so if, if we are to suggest, as I believe that the Bible does, that weakness is the way, that surrender is your joy, that servitude is your life, then we must ask the question, in what ways is becoming a slave to Christ Jesus make us who we really are? See, to be a slave of Christ Jesus is not to be dehumanized, it's to be resurrected. We are not made less of who we are. We are finally remade into who we are always meant to be. You see, at creation, we are made human beings, and at the cross, we're made human beings again. And therefore, in servitude to King Jesus, the one who made you and the one who died for you, you, do ne- you never become less human. You always become more of who you were supposed to be. So in giving yourself to him, in surrendering to Jesus is not only not dehumanizing, but it actually makes you who you are. See, surrendering to Jesus is only dehumanizing if you believe you know more about yourself than God does, than Jesus does. To become a slave of Christ Jesus is not to be belittled, but, but loved. See, in servitude to Christ, because we are are risen to this new life in him, it does not make us small, and and it's not out of manipulation. Rather, this is an act of divine love. I read just this week that divine love always overflows. In other words, that the love that the Trinity has experienced for all of time, Father, Son, and Spirit, necessarily spills over and spilt over into creation and redemption. Creation was an act of love. Redemption, an act of love. Therefore, servitude to the God who creates and redeem is all love. See, surrendering to Jesus is only belittling if he doesn't love us. And he does. To become a slave then is not dehumanizing, it's, it's resurrection. It's, it's not belittling, it's, it's, it's love. And to become a slave then of Jesus Christ then leads to true 
honor, repeated throughout the scriptures, is this constant consideration that out of humility and out of condescending ourselves, we will be lifted up. This is the pathway that Jesus paved for us, recounted in Philippians chapter 2, that he laid his life down for the people of God, and that therefore God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Therefore, James picks up on this, First Peter picks up on this, they extrapolate this idea from the Old Testament, that if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. That, that if you do not honor yourself, you will be honored. That if you fall at the knee of Jesus, he'll give you a new name. Honor goes through suffering now. Glory goes through the cross. Exaltation through humility. Jesus has made a new culture. To become a slave of Christ doesn't just lead to appropriate and right honor, but to become a slave of Christ then leads to true happiness. And in resurrection, love and honor, we find real joy. This is why the Apostle Paul could begin Philippians in the exact same way that he begins Romans, by calling himself a slave. And then by the end of Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. How could the man who said, I'm a slave, also say, rejoice in the Lord always, unless his shackles that he surrendered to is where he finds his joy. I am a slave, he says, yet I rejoice. This is the very same reason that we see the apostles, the men and women of the, the, the early church and all who become followers of Jesus in Acts, that when they suffer, they celebrate because they have identified with Christ. This is why the next thing that Mary does after she surrenders her agency over to the Lord and says, yes, I, I will do what you've asked me to do. The next thing that she does is what? She sings a song. True happiness is found in giving ourselves over to the one who knows what will ultimately make us glad. Jesus has made this new culture. Above all else, Jesus makes us slaves of righteousness, not by forcing us to his agenda. Rather, he first surrenders, Jesus does, his own will. He first surrenders his own glory. He first surrenders his own agency. Jesus binds us to himself by submitting to the Father. Jesus binds us to himself by first binding himself to us. Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is not a hostile takeover. This is a God who woos us into eternal fellowship by his love. He does not, does not take us against our will, nor does he force shackles of righteousness on our life. First, he takes the binding of sin on himself. First, he takes on the consequence of iniquity on himself. First, he lays in the grave himself. First, he takes on the fullness of our sinful bondage on himself. First, he bleeds. First, he aches. First, he laments. First, he endures. First, he dies. And then, after all he has done to identify with us, he liberates us from our imprisonment of sin to be imprisoned by grace, to become slaves of righteousness, that we might become like him. And a new culture is birthed out of this, a new way to be human. 
See, historians have to ask the question, how did we go from this honoring culture of the Roman Empire that pervaded the entire known world, how did we go from that being the centerpiece of humanity to being a people who reject self-honor and self-glory and that kind of hypocrisy and self-adulation to be a people who actually see humility as a merit? What historian John Dixon discovered through his recounting of his research in his book, Humilitas, says that it was not a long, slow change in a cultural ethic. It was one defining moment. This historian says that it was when Jesus, who was worshipped and praised and adored, died on a cross, that a new culture was birthed. No longer than even as a human race do we value self-honor, but we value humility because on the cross, Jesus presented a new way to be human, a new culture. See, the death of Christ makes this new way. All of this is possible because Jesus humbled himself. Jesus is the purest picture for us than of this countercultural posture. He is our example in that he shows us how. He is our authority in that he tells us to do it. He is the one who by his spirit makes us servants and slaves. He empowers us in this.